back, everybody. It's been a few weeks, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna uh, catch up on what we've missed, and uh, we have also been uh, putting together a new podcast, a, a video podcast. The first episode of which will drop roughly in tandem with this, and you'll find the link on cinegods.com. It is going to be the first episode of the. Godcast and uh, Tim and I sat down with our, our longtime friend of the podcast, Sherman Augustus, for a very interesting discussion. I think it went well, don't you, Tim? Oh, it was great talk. It was fun, but but also relevant. Um, yeah. uh, you know, to to the, the whole sort of to uh, everything that's definitely. going on. Yeah, we're gonna really so we're gonna we're gonna tease it like that and let you let you check it out. But definitely go to cinegods.com and uh, look for when that drops, and it will be dropping on our YouTube channel. Uh, and uh, I am sorry to say we we uh, lost the last of the Mary Tyler Moore show in the well. Last well, it's funny that you said it that way. I actually yeah. was having this conversation with my mother. Uh-huh. As, as we joined for the podcast, and of course you, you're talking about Ed, Ed Asner, Ed Asner, 90, 91. 91. yeah. And and my and my mother said that yeah he's the last one, um, and I had to remind my mother Betty White ain't dead. That's true. And, and, <laughs> that and, is and, true. And she's like I think she's crushing a hundred. Uh, late nineties, anyway. Yeah, she's late nineties. That's true. That's true. Betty, Betty White is not considered sort of the core of that. I show, know. Though. I know. Not Gavin McLeod. Yeah. Not you. And, and yes. for that matter, I had to point out that uh, John Amos is still walking around. That's and I know true. people forget John Amos was on that show. That's Ted, true. we lost. Ted, we lost a long yeah. time ago. Well, Ted died. You see, I mean, this is what's crazy. You know, Ted died in eighty six. Eighty six. Uh, he 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 was, I think, even still doing, or might have been right at the tail end of uh, Too Close for Comfort. Yeah. And, no, and what, which what's, I, the name of that, what's the name of that show? The one with, clo- with his daughters? Is it too close? Yes, for that was too close for comfort. Okay. Too, too yeah. close for comfort. And and uh, Jim J. Bullock as uh, what what was his character's name? Monroe. Yeah, Monroe. Monroe. I actually sat in the studio audience for that during the 1980s at one point, and it was just priceless. It was right after somewhere around the time the movie Cujo had come out, and during <laughs> the breaks between scenes. We're going to get back to the Mary Tyler Moore show in a moment here, but bear with me for this. In and the breaks between scenes. Jim J. Bullock w- could not shut up about how much he hated the movie Cujo. And he's just, he's just ripping on Cujo and he's, he's, he's recreating dumb scenes from the movie Cujo. And, he, and the audience is laughing harder at his, his little ad libs between scenes than anything that was in the episode. It was really, it was quite a thing, but we, yeah, we lost Ted Knight in 86 and then mm. everybody else stuck around just until four years ago. Hmm. And and then we lost. Uh, was it was it was it Valerie first? And the, no, it was it was, it was Mary. Gavin, I think it was well Mary no, it was Mary Mary in, in twenty seventeen, and then Mary, I think Valerie in twenty nineteen. Yeah, and then just this year we lost three. We lost Gavin. We lost yeah. uh, obviously just lost Lou, and we lost uh, uh, Cloris. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that that's little, crazy. So, yeah. Three in one year. Uh, but I don't know. go Betty, go for a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stick around to John Amos. People forget John was on that show. John was not only. But John's on young. John's, how John, John, John's only maybe 80, 81. Yeah. Yeah. John's more than same as my dad. 39, I'm looking at, I think. So he's just, so he was there, but you know. He's like 82. He's, uh, John's he was there. John looks the same time. now. This is what's nuts. I know. I swear, it just, just, I mean, just sort of like standing there looking right at him. It's yeah. like, geez. <laughs> what yeah, the I hell, know. dude? I know. <laughs> you look exactly the same. He moves Good a little slow, uh, John. Uh, right. you know, yeah, he was in. Uh, he was just in Coming to America too, uh, but he looks exactly the I same. Know. It is absolutely bizarre. 
Uh, but you gotta love it. So hang in there, John Amos. Hang in there, Betty White. We're uh, we're we're pulling for you. Um, so we also have this. Did you did you get your uh, your total filmmaker book? I absolutely did. I absolutely did. Where is it? Behind, it's behind me someplace. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. It's fantastic. So we should point out to everybody: this has been out of print for a long time. You need to run, run as hard as you can to get this. This is one of you know we we talked about this recently when we talked to John Badham, saying that that John Badham, yeah, baby, here's mine, right on. We were talking about John Badham and the Sydney Lumet books being pretty much the best books about filmmaking written by a filmmaker. Well, now we can add a third because it's back in print. And it is Jerry Lewis's The Total Filmmaker uh, with a new foreword by our good friend Leonard Malton. Um, and, and, you know, people people just don't give Jerry enough credit. This is an yeah. amazing. This is Jerry started, obviously, as a young comic in the Catskills doing that thing, you know, that, that all the young Jewish comics did. You couldn't get clubs anywhere else because, you know, you're Jewish. So you go to the Catskills where all the Jewish people vacation and, and, and it, you know. You, you you got to start, and then they migrated from there, and a lot of them got big careers. And Jerry obviously teamed up with with uh, uh, Dean Dean and had the great TV show, and then what dovetailed into movies, and then they come out of movies, and he gets his own movies, and he started to fall in love with the process. This is a guy who never thought he'd be a filmmaker. Uh, he was just going to be a comic and an actor, and he fell in love with the process and started hanging out with the set designers and with the editors and with the sound mixers. And he he basically learned filmmaking from all of these people as he just circulated between every department in the studio. Yeah. And um, he he eventually went on to teach at USC and wrote this amazing book. It is it is dense. It is, you know, not even in 200 pages. But it is such an incredible philosophical walk through him, his movies, and everything that you need to know to to make a movie. And it's all still valid. It may, it's I, I almost wanted to cry reading some of this stuff. I'm I've I've just kind of been skimming it, but it's just a beautiful book. I'm so thrilled this is in print again. Uh, the original copyright 1971. Uh, so yep. you know, so 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 Jerry was writing this when he was right there in the in the midst of these things. Um, uh, Jerry Jerry gets credited with all kinds of of, of wonderful um, uh, innovations. He used to say he invented video tap. He didn't exactly invent the video tap, but he conceived the notion of the video tap. The video tap being a system by which uh, a director can watch what is being shot. Uh, as they are filming, still filming on 35 millimeter film, but Jerry conceived the notion as video came around, as opposed yep, to kinescopes sure and things like that, of being able to, you know, line up a video camera and, and run that video camera to a, to a separate video feed so Jerry could actually watch things. Uh, uh, and, uh, it wasn't video tap exactly as we know it today, but it was a hell of a notion and, 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 and Jerry figured that out. Um, it, it's just, it's so, it, it's so interesting. I mean, for example, where he's talking about, um, in pre-production and he's talking about, you know, color versus black and white. Cause obviously Jerry made movies in color and black and white. And he was very much part of that moment when everything was migrating. And as color became less expensive, almost everything wound up in color by the late sixties. But it's a really, really fascinating section. And he's talking about Fellini and how some people have compared uh, what he did in The Ladies' Man to Fellini's use of color in Juliet of the Spirits. I'm like, whoa, that's going deep. I, <laughs> I would never have made that connection. But um, he, 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 this is a really great paragraph here. He says, I've seen art directors design sets, select the colors, and finally, when they're being painted, yell, pour more white. It's too blue. You wind up with a dumb blue, a pastel. 
fear. It's the hangover from Hollywood's black and white days, days when all the rugs were tan and all the walls were light green. And there are other rules. Murder mysteries should be should have somber colors. I think they need more color than comedies. But c- by continually pushing it down, you wind up with washed out color, sepias or halftones. Color is another part of the magic, the majesty of making films and should be used that exact way. Like that's mm. that's not the Jerry Lewis we know who's going blindly. That's a really, you know, that's <laughs> a, a thoughtful really filmmaker. A thoughtful uh, filmmaker. It's uh, so it's just so beautiful to go that deep. I love it. The whole book is that stuff. It's wonderful. Back toward the back of the book, there are all kinds of notes and pages from various different scripts, uh, uh, screenplays, uh, yeah. and with, with all kinds of ha- wonderful handwritten notes uh, that Jerry wrote into the uh, into the margins of, of you know, many of his screenplays. Uh, Nutty Professor, Cinderella, all of that kind of stuff. So I really, the, uh, he's taking you deep inside his process. And what's fabulous is that he had a process. I love um, it. You know, we look at the it. movies, and you know, and, and it's easy to dismiss those movies, but uh, those movies are not dismissible. Everything no. that you're seeing on screen is, 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 is was conceived and executed for a specific reason in a specific way. Love it, don't love it, whatever, but it was all conceived and executed very specifically for for an audience that was, you know, plainly a very a very large audience and included a good deal more than just the French. Very much very much so. Very true. Well, shall we uh take a dive into it? Everything's uh, you know, we're uh we're still in COVID central here have been for about a year and a half, uh, mm. but, but uh, people are still going back to the movies. Movie theaters are open. So we'll, we're, we'll get back to normal people. Uh, you can email us at gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Tell us what you're doing. Give us a, give us a little insight into what life's all about. Go to our Facebook pages. Um, and we did, we did um, a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I, I don't know if we had a chance to tell the folks the thing that we did with our buddy, Brian Sebastian, Oh yeah, we, we posted that. We posted that on the Facebook page. Yeah, check that out. Great conversation there too about what's going on now. So yep. you know, a lot of chit chatting going on about all that was all, that all was a, that was very good. Brian Brian is is a is a hell of a podcaster. We we have a lot to learn from him. I'd love to sit down and have him walk us through what he does. He just he just hits a huge audience globally. It's very impressive. Yeah. So and we've known Brian for. 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. It's yeah. been a minute. Yeah. Well, let's see. Where should we start with this? Uh, new movies. Uh, should I get it? Oh, criterion. Maybe we should hit the criterions uh, out of the, out of the, let me get uh, some of those out. while I get me, crept up on a few other. Yeah. Things. So I'm going to start off with uh, a criterion that I never expected to see, which is the original cast album of company. I'm going to pull that out here. Uh, give me a second. <clears throat> You know, uh, this is really interesting. This is a, a D.A. Pennebaker film, we should point out. If it weren't made by D.A. Pennebaker, we, it, we, you know, if we didn't have that sort of great documentary, direct cinema pedigree, uh, it might not be here. But it's really, really interesting. And these are, of course, all on Blu-ray. We're not into the 4Ks yet. Criterion yeah. just announced their first 4K slate. So we're, we're going to be very excited to, to see that roll in. Uh, but this is this is really great. This is kind of something that's been hard to get in many respects. And, uh, you know, company is, is one of those great Stephen Sondheim musicals that has never been made as a movie. Yeah. And the, uh, stage production of course was staged by the great, uh, Harold Prince. And this is DA Pennebaker, uh, taking you inside the, the process behind the curtain, behind the scenes, behind, uh, you know, backstage. And, um, how they're putting together the original cast album, 
the original cast album. And, and, you know, the original cast album of company is a huge seller too, and everyone loves it. So this is, this is kind of that nexus where documentary and musical and, you know, music, cast album music all sort of intersect. And it's a, it's a really fascinating nexus. It's a great, great documentary. And, uh, you know, like, like the total filmmaker by Jerry Lewis, it gives you a, an amazing insight into the process. Um, and it's just great seeing Elaine Stritch there. Elaine Stritch, just if you're, you know, if you're of a certain generation, you just, Elaine Stritch is just such an amazing lady. She's so yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, the, the amazing Japanese film Afterlife by uh, Kore Eda, Hirokazu Kore Eda from uh, 1998, right? Yeah, 98. Uh, this was one of those beautiful movies that sort of helped push Koreeda into the, the, the forefront of international cinema, got him a lot of, uh, international exposure, definitely here. And, uh, it is, it is a lovely poetic movie like all of his movies are. And, uh, they, they all, you know, like all of his movies, they sort of ask these deep existential philosophical questions and don't work too hard to answer them. They just sort of want to lead you through a process of, of, of pursuing the question and answering it in your own way. <laughs> and um, his movies really, really are just uh, beautiful. And this is, this is, I, I think still after 23 years, still one of his best. Um, it's, it's just a, uh, it's a wonderful look at what it means to sort of live between mortality and immortality and to, reflect and it's it's just a fantastic film uh ashes and diamonds by the great polish director Andrzej vida w-a-j-d-a is how it's spelled Andrzej vida who did receive a an honorary oscar before he died this is uh from 1958 still one of his best films um and uh Andrzej vida wait a minute i'm just thinking is vida still alive i don't know he might because he did he hang on a second because he he made a film a few years ago about a famous um Hold on, hold on. I just want to verify this because because he made a great film just a few years ago that um, he died on 2016. Okay, Uh, just wanted to make sure. Because he made a film just before he died uh, about a famous uh, Polish dissident painter, which I thought was incredible. Um, So, um, all right. Confirmed. He was he was accorded an honorary Academy Award. I think around 2010, something like that. Uh, so, Ashes and Diamonds is is one of the films that really kind of uh, brought Polish cinema to the fore internationally as well in 1958, uh, which is sort of when a lot of Eastern European cinema was uh, making its making staking its claim. The Czech New Wave and some some Soviet yeah. stuff, Russian stuff. Anyway, Ashes and Diamonds still an absolutely fantastic film. Um, it, it so a bit of a, a controversial film at the time too, because it does have anti-communist underpinnings to it. So you know, it uh, it a little bit of a miracle that it actually made its way into the world. Um, Beasts of No Nation by uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, mm. who is about to show us what he can do with um, James Bond. This is a long way to go from Beasts of No Nation just six years ago to James Bond. Tim, well, even I, I, even I, even even further from Sin, uh, what was the name of the one on the train? Was it um, uh, his first film? I think it was Sin Nombre, maybe. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. The, the one that, with, the, with the gang guy on top of the train going all the way. Just just an amazing film. But yeah, in, in just a, in just a short few years, um, um, that's. Um, 
quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Yeah, it was, it was sin nombre. It was sin yeah, nombre, and he made and he, and he made that really aggressive kind of uh, um, his version of Jane Eyre. Oh which, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he, you know, sort of revisionist Jane Eyre. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, Beast of No Nation kind of came out of nowhere, at least for me in 2015. I, I, I was not quite on the, the Kerry Fukunaga bandwagon at that point. I know a lot of other people were already on it. This is the one that kind of caught my attention. Um, in any case, it is, uh, it is a, it is quite a movie and, uh, it's based on the, uh, on a novel that, details the civil war that's going on in uh in west africa and focuses primarily on this you know this young kid who the the toll that all the trauma and the the war takes on him and his his journey thereafter and how he's kind of uh, turned into a child soldier and it addresses a lot of these really really rough issues um but fascinating film you know kerry fukunaga does he seems to want to go far and wide he doesn't restrict his um his his vision to any particular cultural area, which is fascinating because he is half Caucasian and half uh, ethnic Japanese, and he doesn't doesn't sort of let that limit his uh, his artistic impulses, and I, I think that's pretty great, and it's a great example for for all of us. Idris Elba, by the way, is the, the mm. brutal warlord in this thing. It's pretty chilling. Kerry, Kerry, he also he also had a run at one of those um, that series uh that they were doing that they did what was that series that true detective that true detective series oh he did yes he did yeah yeah yes, he he, did. he he had a real good run there he it was it might have been the first run uh but he had a real good run with his sort of uh um uh, sure did uh, sure uh, did that series so that might have that might have been what put him on the uh, he's path just, toward that uh, toward that James Bond there. He did some really good work on this. Well, it's nice because he's done the Ang Lee thing, which is that he's worked in so many different genres and on so many different subjects that people don't pigeonhole him now, right? Yeah. They don't say, "Oh, you need to do the Asian thing or the, the this thing or the ad thing." He just he just says, "I want to make a movie. I want to tell a story, and this is what I want to do." And he he now transcends whatever stereotypes people might have tried to impose on him. Before. It's interesting it's going to be great. one of the it's one of the things that we talk about on the Godcast on the Godcast. You know, Sure in, in a larger sense, not him specifically, but the we thing. go there. We go there. It's the thing. Uh, Jacques Duray's famous La Piscine is also out in the Blu-ray. You can also see this on the Criterion channel at the moment, uh, and it is worth checking out. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty hard to not absolutely love this movie. It's got Romy Schneider and Alain Delon, and uh, they're, you know, scantily clad in the movie because La Piscine means the swimming pool. So, you know, swimming pool, Alain Delon, Romy Schneider. It doesn't really matter what it's about. It's just, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's French and it's got those two actors and there's water and they're wet. And, and I, I shouldn't really have to sell it any, any more than that. A lot of great extras on here though. A uh, 2019 documentary by Agnès Vincent de Ray, uh, featuring Alain Delon and Jane Birkin, the mother of, uh, uh, the, the former wife of, uh, Serge Gensburg and uh, the mother of, uh, of uh, Charlotte Gensburg. And um, uh, also with Jean-Claude Carrière, who passed away recently, the great screenwriter and novelist Jean-Emmanuel Cornille. It's a very, very cool documentary. And uh, lots of great archival footage and uh, even an alternate ending, which isn't as good. Uh, working <laughs> Girls. It's, it's not. I mean, it's, it's not. Working Girls. Lizzie, Borden, Lizzie Borden's great Working Girls director approved edition. I'm not a giant fan of Working Girls, Tim. I don't know if, if, if you really... I, I'm not really a big fan of Lizzie Borden, to be honest. Well, you, you Lizzie's work and that movie in particular, you have to... You have to uh, um, uh, consider in the context of the time and the period. It lives there. Yeah. 
and what in, in, in terms of what it's speaking to. So at the time, yeah, um, um, uh, it, it was really sort of interesting stuff that just what hadn't been covered before uh, uh, by by filmmakers. You know, Alison Anders and Lizzie and uh, who else um, uh, back then? Uh, Susan they, they Seidelman. Were, sure, they were they were uh, part of that moment. Yeah, yeah, there was a whole little moment there. Uh, two or three other ones that I'm forgetting right now that she was a part of that whole world. And then from the early '90s, we got Deep Cover uh, by Bill Duke, who has oh man, not, who has not that. directed enough. Why no. has Bill Duke not directed more? Bill, I, I, Bill, I, Bill was ill for quite a while, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. so, so that that kind of got to him. Bill's a little bit older than we like to think of him as being too. But Deep Cover, Jeff and Lawrence Fishburne. I think it was still Larry Fishburne back then. Yeah, and I remember sitting in um, some sort of mixing suite up in Oh Burbank, I think it was, when Bill was was mixing. Deep, co- deep cover and I had an interview yeah. with him and we were going to do it in the office. He's like, yeah, you come up here. And I sat in the, in the mixing suite with Bill as they were mixing some of the business coming out of deep cover. It was really, really cool. Love Bill Duke. Um, just a hell of a director, but also people forget Bill Duke is a hell of an actor. Still Wonderful is. Actor, Bill Duke. He, he was just in something recently playing uh, all gangstered up. I, I, I wish I could remember what it was. Some just recently, literally this year, and looking not very healthy, but he's really. Oh, it's the um, it's the Soderbergh film. It's the Soderbergh. Oh film. yeah, that's right. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's terrific in it. He's just terrific. That's you know, it's 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 sad, but it's like all the weight that he lost, and he's he looks very thin. You know, Bill Duke yeah. used to be a real big imposing guy. And he's very emaciated. Isn't like he lost all this weight, and you're thinking, well, where'd he go? Oh, went on to Brendan Fraser. <laughs> apparently <laughs> I, I hate to say it but that's what happened apparently bill apparently brendan fraser ate bill duke uh, but bill oh. look bill was in what bill's in i think he's one of the guys in, in the first predator and he one of the badass yep in the he first sure predator? is he sure is yes he is uh, yes, i he go is. i'm gonna go back a little bit from trying to catch my first bill duke oh Car- bill duke is in car wash Oh uh, yes, with, yes, with Ivan Dix and all this. So we, we're all the way back to the all the way back to the uh, middle seventies. Well, already, fifty years deep, ago. Deep, deep covers a hell of a, cool, a film. It's super cool and stylish. It's you it, it got Jeff Goldblum in a just totally uh, unconventional turn. Who is yeah. fantastic as this 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 drug dealer? Um, really, really great stuff. And it has this fabulous um, uh, AFI commentary uh, a, commentary AFI conservatory seminar from 2018 uh, with Bill Duke and Lawrence Fishburne uh, moderated by Elvis Mitchell, yeah. uh, it, which is really great. Gets in, you know, Elvis just works him over all, all the, all the issues with the film and what they're thinking and doing. It's great. It's terrific. Bill Duke's an AFI guy, if I'm not mistaken too. Yes, he uh, is. Uh, uh, he goes way back. Yeah. He is indeed. Uh, reaching way back, we got Samuel Fuller's pickup on South Street from 1953, which is a pretty great film. Really intense performance by Richard Widmark as the uh, the 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 wicked Skip McCoy. Um, it's a fun film. Gene Peters. Uh, it's just a, it's a really really fun film. It's it's sort of classic uh, classic Samuel Fuller. Good crime noir. Good kind of you know. 50s noir because 50s noir is a little different from 40s noir it's a real it's a real tough hard-boiled movie and uh also great extras on this thing uh and then we also have so i can get uh, about about here. samuel because samuel lived yes. a long time too samuel didn't die till 1997 so i had a chance uh, to interview samuel like oh you did oh well, that's uh, great in the, in, in the 90s you know because you know samuel samuel used to run around with with, with uh with quentin uh, uh with tarantino uh, all the time, because you know Tarantino was deeply into sure. Sam. So whenever I would bump into Quentin, uh, he'd always be talking about Sam Fuller, and he got me two or three interviews 
uh, with Samuel. Samuel, people forget, you know, what a forward thinking writer he was. Uh, you know, Samuel has more writing credits than he does directing credits. It's true. Um, uh, you know, and it's, and it's way more than just the shot corridor and all that kind of stuff. He just, you know, a lot of stuff he pioneered as a filmmaker, but also just as a sort of literary person. So anyway, that's my little Samuel Fuller. We also have Bringing Up Baby, the the classic Howard Hawks, uh, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedy. It's kind of considered in many respects the the quintessential screwball comedy from 1938. And uh, I think it's a movie very much ahead of its time in terms of style and script and uh, and acting. It's just so timeless. It's just still so funny. It really is. It's so completely off the wall. And uh, both of these actors, uh, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, just they chew the scenery like like nobody's business. You realize why they are two of the greatest and and just most agile movie stars of all time. Um, the original 2005 audio commentary by Peter Bogdanovich is on here, and you should want it on here because it is a film school and a commentary. It is absolutely fantastic. And, Catherine, uh, Catherine, Catherine, Catherine just owns that film. I mean, I love oh, Carrie in the film, Howard, I, all that, but Catherine owns true. that film. He he has no trouble letting her walk away with the movie, right? And that's every kind of scene, the thing you have to admire. Every scene. Every scene. Every scene. Yeah. Yep. He lets her walk away with every scene. It's absolutely great. Uh, and then we also have these, this is, this is one that came out of the blue for me, the signifying works of Marlon Riggs. Uh, this contains films from 1986 to 1995. And, uh, Tim, how familiar are you with Marlon Riggs? Because oh. I was not at all. Oh, yeah. Definitely no, uh, Marlon Riggs. Again, Marlon, who was from Texas, but Marlon was, was working during that late LA rebellion period. Um, yeah. uh, you the color adjustment and, and, and black, black is black ain't, uh, uh, never, never, never interviewed Marlon. Uh, he, he died rather young, ridiculously young. Marlon could have been 40, um, uh, when he died in the early nineties. Uh, but he was right there in that period. He only a little bit older than me, I, I think, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always wanted to talk to him, but he, he, he passed before I had a chance to, but color adjustment <laughs> is an amazing film. Black is black. Black ain't, oh my God, uh, which he, and he made, that, that film came out the year he passed. Yeah, died in 1994, 30, 37 years oh, old. Man, well, man. it's, it's all, th- these are, these are all of his, you know, for, to, to sort of summarize this, Marlon Riggs was, was black, he was gay, and he, during a particular different, particularly difficult period to be both of those things at the same time. Mm. And, uh, you know, you, you've got AIDS, you've got all kinds of race issues in the late 80s, your 80s, 80s spanning into the 90s. You're also dealing with geopolitical stuff like the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. And um, a lot of things are going on then that obviously make it uh, challenging to be who he was. And he he evokes all of that in his work. And it is... Uh, it is a very, very personal work, and it's it, there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. So he's a filmmaker well worth rediscovering uh, posthumously. And uh, these, these are mostly documentaries and, docu- and documentary shorts that we're talking about, rather yes. than narrative films. Just, just so people know, yeah, amazing. It's, stuff. It, 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 and and uh, you know, the tongues uh, untied is kind of like considered one of the one of the original. In, inceptional points in the new queer cinema. So, mm. uh, you know, he is, he's a significant figure in a number of sort of underground cinema movements from that period. And, um, it's a, it's a really, it's a great thing for Criterion to pull out. You know, they, they come up with stuff that, that is not just sort of a part of the obvious canon every so often. They come up with things that it's like, okay, you, you missed this the first time around. 
worth discovering and adding it to your your film knowledge. So the signifying works of Marlon Riggs, mm. good criterion uh, entry there. And then the one that I just, I cannot stop raving about this is Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror, another filmmaker taken before his time. Uh, you know, Tarkovsky only made about a half dozen films mm. and uh, Mirror is is arguably i mean with all due respect it's it's hard look solaris is amazing and stalker is amazing they're all amazing on some level but mirror has some of the most stark stunning visuals i've ever seen in a movie and if if you've worked on a film if you've shot a film if you know anything about cinematography and what you have to do to capture shadow and light and you know the uh, tim uh, i mean what kinds of crazy compromises happen when uh, that you just don't see you think it's an easy scene to shoot right oh we got an easy scene here it's going to be easy we'll just have some natural light here you know throw up some reflectors and light and then you'll be like crap there's a shadow falling on like that how do we get that corner okay so then you try to get rid of that shadow and it screws up some other part and next thing you know you're just pulling your hair out and you spent 2 hours trying to fix lighting for a scene that was supposed to be easy, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. lighting can be a, a monster. It can be a monkey on your back. And so if you know those aspects of, of film and you watch Mirror, you realize what a genius Tarkovsky was. There is one scene here in particular where the lead character walks into a room and, you know, turns on a light and turns it on, turns another light on. And, and it looks, it's just like, okay, it's a long shot. It's a boring shot. Guy's in a room, you know, there's some light and shit. no. It's it's a jigsaw puzzle. It's a freaking yeah. Rubik's cube of lighting. And if you understand it, you just think, I don't know how they did that. I I don't know how they how long they worked to get all the all that lighting nuance, turning lights on, turning them off in a single room. Because usually when a light gets turned on, it's not the light that's giving you the light of the light. It's it's some guy who's sw- switching yeah. on like an HMI back there to pretend that'll make you think it's that light, right? It's unreal. This is like Stanley Kubrick, Barry Lyndon stuff. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Mirror is a miraculous movie. I, I love every single part of it. Um, we haven't even talked about, you know, the subject matter. It's, it's, well, uh, it's, one it's, of, it's, it's a beautiful story. And then that's the other thing. Lots of poetry, actual yeah. poetry in yeah. that movie, poems in that movie. Uh, it, it, you know, and it's about, it's about memory. Because the guy is he's dying and he's thinking yeah. back over his life. But, it's, but, 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 but more than that, it's about Russia. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it, it's a, it's about the nation itself. So yeah, it's extraordinary stuff. And he is exiled from Russia, self-exiled, uh, not too long after, because he eventually goes to Sweden to make movies where he made, uh, the sacrifice, which won the, um, the, uh, Palm d'Or at the Cannes film festival in, I want to say 91, 90, something like that. Mm. Um, that was a great year at the Cannes Film Festival. Alan Parker's Birdie got the runner-up award. Oh amazing. yeah, yeah, good year. Anyway, that's that's it for Tarkovsky's Mirror, and uh, as as with the others, tons of great stuff here, including a 2007 documentary um, about his cinematographer, which uh, is, is goes into a lot of this stuff that I've just been talking about as well, and how they you know all the different film stocks that they mix, and it's really amazing stuff. Visually, one of the greatest films you, you'll ever see. Really, truly yeah. so. Yeah. Um, do we, uh, so I've got some arrow here. We've got new movies. We've got 4k. We got TV. I was looking, maybe at, I was some looking at if we can get into it. I, I was looking at the 4k. Okay. Uh, if you know, if you, if you, if you want to take a look at the 4k, cause there's a couple of interesting things in there, <clears throat> excuse me. And I was wondering how, uh, for instance, I see David Lynch's because you know, you know, we got another Dune coming with, uh, who, oh yeah. Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a Dune, I don't know, about 20 years ago now, I think, back in 2000, they did that TV thing. And then, of course, just yep. David Lynch's Dune. This, this is the yep. Dune we're talking about, right? I am, I am, I, you know, we, we feel a little bit connected to Dune here. So here, here's my, my thing, my spiel on Dune. So I met Frank Herbert once. There used to be a bookstore here in LA called uh, Touch a Hobbit. Oh yeah. Uh, which was right. It was very world was world famous for a while. It was a science fiction fantasy bookshop and it started up on Westwood Boulevard. And I used to go there when I was a kid and, you know, just nerd out on all the Star Trek stuff. And then they moved, believe it or not, they moved to one block away from my high school and it's a golf shop now, but they, they painted, it was, a, it was a space like 10 times the size. They had different rooms. They painted, you know, murals on the walls. It was like walking into Geek Central going in there. And naturally at lunchtime when I was in high school, we're like, woo, let's go over, change a hobbit. So we'd run over to change a hobbit, geek out on the Star Trek stuff, and then go back to school. And they would bring authors in, right? Authors would do their book signings there. And I met Frank Herbert there. I met a lot of great authors there, but I, I got my copy of Dune signed by the man himself. Then, you know, after Lynch does Dune, my wife winds up working for Lynch. And then some years after, she winds up working on the Dune miniseries. Mm. And the and then, of course, the new Dune film directed by a French-Canadian director that I've interviewed. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm connected to all these Dune things in some weird way. And uh, this is Lynch's Dune, which I think gets, unfortunately, way too much flack. And I'm thrilled that Arrow has put together this 4K release of it, which is great. It comes with a booklet and the 4K. And it's just the best thing ever. Um, I, I, it's, it, it's just absolutely to die for. I think it's fantastic. So um, I remember I remember going to see that movie in 1984. But I'm still in St. Louis oh. in this particular period. And you go into the movie, you go see this movie, and they gave you the little booklet. Uh, yep. To go see the movie so that you could follow along <laughs> with that, with this little booklet so that you could follow all the characters yep. and all this kind of stuff. Uh, that's the thing. The, the booklet there should be a duplicate of the booklet that they gave filmgoers back in 1984 uh, when you went to see Doom. That's the booklet that they should give out. I don't know you if don't, that you don't have that, to, but that's and actually, and, and, and I want and I want to I want to preface this, too, because don't want anybody to get overly confused. This is not a 4K UHD release it's still it's still a blu-ray release but it's a 4k restoration that they took the blu-ray from uh, so I, I, it's 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 in our 4k collection here for that reason because it's it's long overdue and it's arrow and we got a couple other arrows here but nonetheless here's what i remember when i saw dune the first time they handed us a glossary that's that thing that's what i'm talking yeah. about yeah 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 that's what i'm you talking about in, that's never happened to me before. I walk into a movie and they hand me a piece of paper and this is your, this is your cheat sheet for the movie. I'm telling you, I'm sorry. Well, this will explain what spice is and what, you know, you're like, I, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> it's that it's really, I, but there it is. Yeah. Uh, they hit you with it. They hit you with it pretty hard. Uh, lots of really, really great stuff on here. The, uh, the features and extras on the, uh, on disc one are it's just everything. I can't even, I, I can't even get into it. Well, you, you, it, you know, all about featurettes. About about this Dune. Yeah. And people will forget. It'd be a big movie, for one thing. All yeah. of the people that are in this movie, that I'm, I'm going to name a few now that I know a whole lot of folks will have forgotten is in this movie. Patrick Stewart is in this movie. Kevin I Cullen. know. I know. Sting is in this movie. Jurgen Frocknow is in this movie. Everett McGill, who, of course, went on to work with David and uh, Twin Peaks and all that stuff, is in this movie. Richard Jordan is in this movie. Linda Hunt is in this movie. Jose Farrar is in this movie. Brad Dourif is in this movie. I mean, we, you know, Cal McLaughlin and Virginia. It was, it was a crazy, it was a it crazy was, cast. Dude, that is just, that is just ridiculous. The, the, the heavy hitters that are just all over this movie. And 
Toto did the score. In Toto. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that. Toto did the score. Um, uh, Tim, we also, also from Arrow, and these are legit 4K UHD with HDR releases now, um, two that also come in the same kind of packaging as Dune with the, uh, with the disc in the keep case and then a booklet. Two that I would never have expected to be on anybody's radar for this, but um, it clearly Arrow is aware of an audience out there. We're talking about two Dario Argento movies, The Bird with oh. the Crystal Plumage and The Cat of Nine Tails. Yeah. I am not a Dario Argento fan. These come with giant piles of extras that almost make it worthwhile for me. I mean, interviews and featurettes and documentaries and, you know, everything that's in the collector's booklets. And it's just on and on and on and stuff on how they made it and interviews with the department heads. It's crazy. Why should I like Dario Argento generally, and why should I like these two movies in particular? Can you can you make a case for me? Well, what are you, what are you going to say about Giallo? <laughs> it, 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 it sort of is what it actually is, and to the extent that it is what it is, Dario does it better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, it, you know, sort of sort of framed and laid it all out uh, the way it should be. This movie, uh, uh, or the the, the the first one, The Bird, I particularly love that movie. Uh, gorgeously shot movie. Everything was, was saturated in color back then. You know, not just the color red from, for all the blood and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of them were sort of couched as procedural thrillers. Some cop was usually investigating, you know, yeah. some murders or something like that, which is what's going on in this film. Tony Mustante. Uh, 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 I love Tony Musante. Yeah, you, people forget about him as, as an actor. Dark haired, curly haired Italian actor played Toma. Uh, on, <laughs> on, on TV uh, back in the day. You, you, uh, he popped up on television all through the, all through the middle eighties, middle nineties. You'd see Tony all the time. So Tony, uh, doing his thing in this movie. I don't know. It's, it's, I, look, I would never drag anybody into Giallo, but if you like Giallo, you might as well dig the best of it. And this is the best of it. Well, if you like Giallo, you'll probably also like Dead and Buried, which Blue Underground has released. All of these, all the, it's funny. 4K UHD is no longer just for, uh, for new movies. Dead and Buried from Blue Underground uh, on uh, 4K UHD Ultra HD uh, is is kind of a weird choice it, because it's a total like uh, exploitation slasher film. You know, I don't mm. it, it just would never have been if, if you're making a list of the top 10,000 films you're going to put on on 4K. This would never have been mine. But uh, clearly there's an audience for it. So the only thing that I really, really like about this, which is otherwise a just her relentless slasher film, um, is <laughs> slasher slice zombie film. And yeah, it, it's just, it's just, it's you know, it's it's right there. It's right there in that Wes Craven Friday the Thirteenth kind of place. But um, I like the cast. I'll say that I really, really like the cast. Um, mm-hmm. it, we should point out that Ron Shusett and Daniel Bannon uh, wrote this, which uh, those are the guys who wrote Alien. They mm-hmm. would, you know, so it's got good writing credentials. Robert Englund is in this. You know, a lot of people who would, who would go on to do their own other horror things. And I like the cast. I like that. I like Melody Anderson, who was a thing for a moment. Oh, yeah. Jack yeah. Albertson is always yeah. fun. James Farantino. So, I mean, there are some good people involved. There's a lot of great extras. Um, not my cup of tea, but um, great audio commentary, by the way, with Stephen Poster, whom, whom we've sat next to at certain Lafka dinners. He's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Great guy. Love Stephen Poster. Uh, we also have Transformers the Movie, 4K UHD uh, and Blu-ray combo set. Uh, you know, it's animated. It's a thing. I, I'm not, you know, whatever. I, 
if you're if you're a fan, you're a fan. If you're not, you're not. It, to be honest, I prefer it. I prefer it to the live action films from the from the middle two thousand. This is this is this is this is I don't like any of them. This is an animation from the eighties. Yeah, I don't uh, like and, any of them. And it takes place in two thousand five, by the way. Well, you know what I like about this though? The voices. Yeah. You got Robert Stack doing a voice. You got Leonard Nimoy doing a voice. You got, you got Orson Welles Eric <laughs> doing, Idle. doing a voice. Eric Idle yeah. doing a voice. So that was always kind of, kind of cool to me. Uh, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there's not, it's got an audio commentary and storyboards and various other things. It's fine. You know, you got to, got to be a fan already. Um, and likewise, if you're a big fan of Mortal Kombat, the uh, Mortal Kombat Legends Battle of the Realms is out 4K UHD with digital code. That's a new one that came anywhere. out this, uh, what, past year or two this ago? Is, this, no, this is, no, this is animated. One. This is an, oh. yeah, this is not the new Mortal Kombat. This is an animated Mortal Kombat to, to go with it. You know, Warner, kind of what Warner does with the DC things and trying to make Mortal Kombat a little bit of a, of its own universe. And, uh, so that's what's going on here. It's fine. It doesn't really transcend anything. It, it just more of the same. Uh, so here are the ones that I, I really want to get us into. Let's 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 get the, the two GI Joes out of the way first. So oh, we yeah. have both uh, GI Joe Retaliation and GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra, which totally tanked recently, but has some mm. great costumes in it. I mean, really great costumes. Uh, those those are both out in 4K UHD as well. Dwayne Johnson and and uh, <coughs> excuse me. Mm. And Channing Tatum and Bruce Willis uh, trying to sort of lock it down in retaliation with the big star power. And, of course, went nowhere and didn't do much for it. But the question I have, first of all, do these look okay? Yeah, they look great. They look amazing. They, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. The, the 4K is great. The UHD is – or the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, the HDR is absolutely just dazzling. The, the CGI is phenomenal. It'll blow up your, your television set. If you have a 4K system – It'll look fantastic. But the movies don't work, Tim. Why? Nope. They keep trying so hard to make this a franchise for Paramount because Paramount has no franchises right now. Yeah. And they're trying to make themselves one. Star Trek isn't really working out except on TV. Um, they can't make enough of those movies. So they keep trying for G.I. Joe. They don't have Transformers anymore. So why does G.I. Joe not work? It feels like it should. They never get the tone right. For one thing, that first G.I. Joe back in the day uh, was more or less a comedy almost. You know, uh, one of them Wayans, one, one of them Wayne brothers was yeah. around in it joking and joking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, the, the G.I. Joe animated that I grew up watching was, you know, never particularly a comedy. Uh, and then the, and then this one, the same thing. Uh, the tone yeah. is all wrong. Uh, and and uh, so so I don't know. It, it's just a, maybe it's just not a, maybe it just doesn't translate well. Uh, and then, you know, G.I. Joe, you know, not, you know, a little bit of a, a little, some of that stuff is just a little corny. You know, the villains and all yeah. that kind of stuff. It just, it just doesn't play. Um, just, uh, so I'm, I mean, I'm trying yeah. to figure out why, why did these characters not work for me? They get the right actors. They, they, they get the, the production values right, but I just, I can't fall in love with the world. Yeah. And maybe it is the tone. Maybe you're right. It's the tone. They just don't get the tone right. Uh, 35th anniversary 4K UHD release of Jim Henson's Labyrinth with David wow. Bowie wearing the gnarliest hairstyle you've ever seen. Uh, so uh, how I, I, watching this, it comes with uh, obviously the digital uh, Movies Anywhere code. So you can add this to your Movies Anywhere library. This came on the heels, of course, of Dark Crystal, mm. except it now adds David Bowie and uh, <coughs> uh, and um, Jennifer, Jennifer Connelly for, you know, a little live action uh, stuff going on. Um, you know, t it, 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 
it just doesn't have the magic of the Dark Crystal, though. It doesn't have the Henson magic on a certain level. And I keep trying to figure out why. And again, this is like with G.I. Joe. I can't figure out why this kind of falls a little short for me. Even something like The NeverEnding Story, which comes from roughly around the same period, a little bit earlier, I think, uh, is, is much more imaginative and does so with less. What, what, do, what, are, what Why does Labyrinth just not quite pull it off? It, it, you look, it, it definitely, this, this movie moves so much slower uh, than, than, than a couple of the movies that you mentioned. I'm just talking about the actual pace of the movies here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just the narrative, the story, uh, all that kind of stuff is a little bit. It's Terry Jones writing, uh, Jim Henson's story. Um, but it just, it just doesn't move. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't bring you along. Never in story, it moves pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, particularly, does, particularly right. once you get to that third act and we start flying around on that, that thing, this, this really doesn't have that. It's a lot of dialogue. We're walking around a lot. The sets and the costumes and the, uh, the puppets, I guess is production what value to spare. Fan, fantastic. But it's very often it's just an incredibly inert movie, uh, yeah. with, you know, people talking and amazing costumes and boring the crap out of it. Well, you know, Sir Terry Jones wrote it based on a a, a, a Trevor Jones story, and it's uh, I will say this about it: it's it's gorgeous looking, thanks to Alex Thompson, the amazing British DP who, of course, shot so many great films, including Excalibur. So uh, it has that going for it. Uh, two new two new 4Ks here: Quiet Place Part Two 4K mm. UHD, also with uh, Digital Movie Code which you can use to, to register for Voodoo because Paramount's not signed up with movies anywhere. Um, uh, Tim, are you a fan of the Quiet Place movies? You and I haven't really talked a lot about these. Well, so these two movies, Quiet Place, Quiet Place 2, look, um, these are films that fall into the category of things that I appreciate more than things that I actually like. And I'm, uh, now, <laughs> I can be a bit overly analytical of these things. I get it. Big, dumb, afternoon popcorn movie. I grew up with those, thoroughly enjoyed them. But even as a kid... I needed them to have some sort of a, a, a internal consistency to make sense to me, right? Yeah. So baseline of the uh, Quiet Place films, I, I have a problem with the baseline sort of conceit of the movie. Uh, yeah. these, these alien ear monsters come. Uh, they can hear you. Uh, if, if you make a noise, they'll swoop in and eat you, particularly in the first movie. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, well, these people live in the worst possible place they can possibly live <laughs> in, in a circumstance like this. And I got to tell you, they make a lot of really awful decisions. You're letting the kids wander around I all know. over the place, grabbing stuff, playing with toys and, and going Shh, a lot. <laughs> I'm like, seriously, this is the way we're going to defend ourselves from the aliens? We're going to go Shh. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you people deserve to be eaten. You're just yeah. awful. Particularly when in the first movie they got that place out by the um and I don't want to ruin the movies for anybody, but you know, it's been yeah. a bit out by the uh, waterfall there. Yeah. When you go out by the waterfall, the water's falling, and we're out by the waterfall and we can talk normally. Build your house by the fucking waterfall. <laughs> Maybe we should stay over there. <laughs> With the, uh, anyway, and I and these are like these all you know really practical, ultra hypercritical sort of things. But I'm sorry, once they get in my head, then I just start picking through the whole movie. Yeah, uh, and and in the second movie, it's just as bad. It's just as bad. I, I, so so here's my take. Uh, I agree with absolutely everything you just said. But after about a year of not sitting in a movie theater, when I had the chance to sit down in an actual, honest to goodness theater and watch a Quiet Place Part Two. 
I, I didn't care about any of that. I was sitting in a big theater and I was watching monsters and I was eating my popcorn and I was back in the movie theater. And somehow my, my movie critic brain just kind of atrophied and went away. And I just sat there going, cool. That is monster. That's big monster. Cool. Oh, look, they're running. They're running. Run from the monster. Run from the monster. And I was, I was like 10 again. I was 10. I didn't care. I didn't care. So uh, maybe maybe COVID is, is making all of us a little bit stupid. But everything you just said is right. Uh, in any case, uh, disc one has the movie. Disc two has the uh, as Blu-ray and special features, including uh, John Krasinski's diaries. Emily Blunt and John Krasinski making movies together. I think it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Oh, yes. Uh, by the way. A lot of good performances in these movies, too, as I, as I poke the kids these especially. movies. Excellent work. Um, you know, just excellent performances. And the deaf daughter, we should point out, that actress is deaf. Okay, mm-hmm. that's she is a, she's a legit deaf actress, and and um, good on him for for hiring her because she's wonderful. And yeah. I just hope that you know, like she doesn't fall into that Marley Matlin trap where she's playing deaf people for the next twenty or thirty years. Yeah. You know, I hope she gets I hope she gets more diverse roles. I hope they give her more opportunities to do more interesting things. And uh, that happens a lot more now than it used to. We see that with all kinds of people where uh, the nature of the person is integral to whatever the, uh, you know, the the role is, the character is. But the part isn't about that. That, So if they're in a wheelchair, yes, but but the the film isn't about them being or if they're, you know, Stumptown has a wonderful um, 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 young actor who's on the spectrum, and he's wonderful in Stumptown. This is a this is like it's a, fantastic. Yes, yeah. He's he's wonderful in the show, but the show isn't about that at all. It's just, no. just it's, some people have brothers and sisters and relatives who are on the spectrum. Yeah. So so that's and and th- when they do it like that, that's the way you want it done. So Lin Manuel Miranda's In the Heights uh, mm-hmm. was was a, a huge Broadway success. By the way, before he did Hamilton, and they made a movie about it. And uh, John Chu, who had done Crazy Rich Asians, directed it and just nails it. It's just filled with light and life and color. And it's just an explosion of uh, Washington Heights, you know, in, in musical numbers. And this movie is really, really fun. Busby Berkeley level uh, dance choreography and some of this stuff. And then this poor movie, uh, after kind of blowing up big and getting a lot of great reviews, it sort of got attacked and it kind of tanked a little bit. And so before we move on, this is 4K Ultra UHD, 4K UHD, once again, the last of them. Uh, let's talk for just a second about, you know, first of all, there was an attack on the movie, which I think was unfair, saying, oh, no, we, we get it. It's all about, you know, the, the, the Latino people who live in Washington Heights, but you've missed the whole community of Afro Latino people, and they're almost invisible in the movie. Legitimate. Your, your thought is that a legitimate criticism or not? Well, well, first of all, it's actually literally not true because there are Afro, there are Afro uh, uh, Cubans, Afro. There, there, there are Black Latin Americans in this movie. There are. Uh, they don't happen to be the principal characters in the movie, but 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 saying that he ignored their existence—that's just literally untrue. So yes. you know, because your facts matter. I- I, I feel like that was a little bit of publicity seeking and you just kind of corroborated that. Yeah, and no, by that's the way, literally not true. I know one person from Washington Heights. I only know one person who's from Washington Heights and he's Ukrainian. So, <laughs> so if we're going to do uh, that, then, yeah. you know, I know some Jews who live there too. So, so if we're going to do that, then we would have to do that about all. So that's just like literally not yeah. true. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, why did, why did, why did it not blow up uh, at the box office the way that everyone expected it to? This is the more interesting conversation. 
Well, you know, I think that we're the, the, there, that's when we're running into this sort of a uh, spot of what, what we call cancel culture or what we used to call political correctness uh, uh, in, in, in all of these sorts of things. And it, it, I think it sort of freaked out the potential audience. There, there, were, there were lots of things that people were poking at with respect to this movie, right? So you have uh, the central storyline pivots around a young Dominican man and whether or not he's going to go back to uh, or go to the Dominican Republic. I don't, I don't even think he was actually from the Dominican Republic. I think he was, I think his family immigrated from the Dominican I, Republic. I, 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 I couldn't tell you because that would have meant I would have had to keep track of the plot. And I was just looking at the color and listening to the music. And, and it's all a pop and all this kind of stuff. And people yeah. were, were doing a lot of calculating of all these people. So beyond the Afro-Cuban thing, it's like, you know, that guy playing the Dominican guy, he ain't Dominican. And that guy, yeah. and that girl playing the Mexican girl, she ain't That's Mexican. not fair. And, I, and, I, and fair. I'm like, well, look, guys, now, <laughs> if we're going to start doing that, um, uh, then we're going to find ourselves in all kinds of trouble. This is what I also think. <clears throat> Lin, Lin-Manuel um, probably would have done well to sit back and think to himself, where's the culture right now? Yeah. Where's the culture right now? And then he should, should have probably tried to cast that movie, which you know was probably being cast and executed two, three, four, five, two, three, four years ago anyway, um, in, in, in such a way that it recognized that the culture has moved to a place where it would like to be very specific about these things uh, and less generalist about these things. So as we watch, as Steven Spielberg is, uh, is uh, I guess, remaking um, uh, uh, West Side Story, West, West Side Story. Yeah, uh, you know, a movie that I love, uh, West Side Story, but a movie in which a Greek dude is playing uh, what Puerto Rican? Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. He's playing Puerto yeah. Rican. The Greek dude is <laughs> playing yeah. Puerto Rican. I think there's George only Harris. I think there's only and, like and one actual, Oscar. And he won an Oscar for it. Won an Oscar for it, and the other Oscar went to the actual Puerto Rican, the only Puerto Rican playing an actual Puerto Rican, Rita Moreno. Rita Moreno. I think she's the only Puerto Rican in the actual movie. This movie. She Puerto is. Rican, Puerto she Rican. is. So, so, so can we live there anymore? No. No, we cannot live there anymore. We cannot have the Greek guys playing Puerto Ricans and, and, and brown face and, and, and all that. No, we can't live there anymore. That's fine. We've moved forward. Now, where are we on these things? And that's where I think we're going to have to we're gonna have to sort this out a little bit better. I get that we can't do that. Uh, by the way, all the Puerto Ricans in Spielberg's uh, movie are, you know, Puerto Rican. <laughs> so, so Spielberg learned something from that. And 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 I and I think that the culture, the, the Hollywood, the movie making culture is simply going to have to adjust and realize that there are things that we used to do in the past that we just can't do anymore uh, because people will look at them and see them. And some folks will be offended by them. They never really offend me. You know me. Nothing offends me. No. And, and, and frankly, a lot of this is part of the, the organic process of as different immigrant groups come to the United States and become culturally integrated and work their way up the economic ladder, they gain access to things like the movie business. And, you know, that's just the way that things were. I mean, the, if you go back into the, into the 1930s, um, really pretty much, you know, if you wanted to uh, make a movie and you were not Caucasian, you had to work in poverty row films, or you had to work in one of these other underground industries. Over time, all of that stuff kind of bubbles up and become and, and goes mainstream. Same thing yeah. with exploitation films, which is what we talked about in the movie Schlock. You know, when we made Schlock those twenty some years ago, um, that's the whole point: is that all these people who are working in in you know the the, the underground, the Corman films, the nudie cuties, and so forth, they eventually worked their way up and went mainstream. Same thing with black exploitation. Black exploitation. Everybody in those movies went mainstream at a certain point. So, yeah. um, you know, the the cinematographers, the actors, the writers. 
Uh, everybody except Larry Cohen, who kept making exploitation. Because <laughs> he was making but, money. Because that's, that's, that was it. <laughs> Larry but really wasn't yeah. making movies. Larry was making money. Well, it is a it is a global industry now, and it uh, yeah those things those things migrate. Let's talk about some some new films. Habit is a grindstone movie released from Lionsgate. Mm. Uh, it's not your usual grindstone movie. It's not about talking animals, and it's not uh, it's it's well, it's kind of not really about uh, you know big tough guys. It doesn't have Bruce Willis or uh, Anto- or, or uh, Antonio Banderas or anybody like that. But it is it is about uh, some. Pretty ruthless nuns, <laughs> and hence the hence the uh, the the name habit because it's a habit you'll want to acquire as the uh, tagline goes. Anyway, um, so Bella Thorne is is a party girl who's running drugs in L.A. and in the end, somehow that. There's a whole like uh, kind of Tarantino-y stolen money reservoir dogsy thing that happens, and you wind up with these women dressed as nuns and just going a little bit uh, crazy. So they're not real nuns; they're just bad girls dressed up as nuns, and it's very exploitationy and it's very grindstoney, but it's a little different grindstone. And then we also have Spirit Untamed, the uh, animated semi-sequel to the DreamWorks movie of some years ago, which yeah. was originally uh, hand animated. It was 2D animation, cell animation. This is CG animation. Uh, it's still about a horse. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's it's about basically several, gir- three girls and, and their horses, one of whom is Spirit. I guess as a movie that is about girl empowerment, and these three girls from different backgrounds and different colors who form kind of a triumvirate, um, you know, and it's all about growing up and doing the right thing and, you know, following your dreams and following your passion and saving the horses from the big, bad rustler people and all that stuff. I, I guess it's Blu-ray. It's got a movies anywhere code, but mm-hmm. all I could think about was Tim will laugh at this. People who aren't old enough to, to know what I'm talking about will not laugh at it. I'm watching it. And on a certain level, I felt like, well, this is kind of like, uh, you know, a tween version of uh, Ebony, Ivory, and Jade. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's all I could think about. <gasps> and, I, and then I was thinking my daughter would never sit still for this movie. Yeah. She just wouldn't. So I think it kind of misses the mark, but whatever. It's all right. Heavy duty uh, voice talent in that movie. Andre Brower and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. 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 They, 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 they paid some money for people. I, I see. I see. I see the. I see the. Um, uh, the house next next door. Yeah. Two directed by Dion Taylor, who I love referring to as the hardest working black filmmaker in all of Hollywood. Dion Taylor so true. has like three times as many credits as Spike Lee. <laughs> That's because, he, because, he, because he makes he makes a movie every 25, 30 minutes. He's probably he's probably wrapping up two or three of them right now. It's uh, unreal. He, he, he knocks unreal. them out, and I and I and, and I'm joking, but I'm not joking because um, um, I, I I deeply deeply respect that in the same way that I deeply respect the work of Tyler Perry, even though I'm not particularly nuts about all these films. I'm not particularly nuts about all of Dion's films. This one here uh, is a sequel to you know Meet the Blacks, you know Mike Epps, and all these so you know these funny black films to more or less live somewhere in the space. Although sometimes they'll make a thriller, you know, a sort of you know in, uh, fairly serious sort of thriller. But these these movies mostly live in the space where where the, where the Fridays of of old remember yeah. the Fridays they, sure. they they mean to live in those spaces 
um, with whatever the new talent might be, you know, Cat Williams, uh, Mike Epps, whoever it might be. And generally, they're, they're, they're funny, funny enough. Uh, and they, and they fill funny a certain slot. Funny enough is a good way of putting it. Funny enough, yeah, they funny fill enough. a certain solid slot. But hey, uh, what I love about them is he makes them. He makes these movies. Sure. He goes out. He gets the money. These movies have perfectly fine production values. You're paying union wages, putting actors like, to work, giving people shots. Right. I love it. It's it's the same thing that we talk about with Andy Sidaris. Yeah, and there are a number of those guys, right? They show up at the American film uh, film market every year with like three or four new movies. They're always working. They're always hustling. Those movies, uh, they they those movies are never made for more than a buck fifty, and they never sell for more than about two bucks. Mm. But you know what? That's fifty cents profit. Yep, 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 and, and that's you the way know, it everybody, works. Everybody actually got paid, so I have to say that about Dion uh, as I as as I poke at him a little bit here. This one here in Midland, just like all yeah. the other ones, but kind of funny, and uh, you know, kind of funny is usually good enough. Got a got a uh, Kino Lorber title here that came out uh, a little while ago, but it's worth mentioning. This is a new Abel Ferrara film, which was I think in the can, but shelved for a little bit. Got some got middling critical reaction to it. Uh, it is, uh, it's called Tommaso, T-O-M-M-A-S-O. And uh, it is a really kind of unusual Abel Ferrara film uh, that stars Willem Dafoe as Pier Paolo Pasolini, the late Italian and very scandalous and controversial Italian director. Um, died controversially. Solo. Yeah. It died controversially. He was, he was stabbed to death by a, a, a male prostitute from whom he was either or soliciting sex or drugs. In any case, uh, Pasolini is most known for Solo, which some, you know, has had a Criterion release in the past. It's considered just a sadistic, disgusting movie. Look at child abuse and fascism and all kinds of other things. It's really a pretty vile film. But at the same time, Pasolini is also known for a one of the most interesting biographical films of Jesus called The Passion of St. or The, uh, the Gospel According to St. Matthew. Mm. And uh, so a fascinating, conflicted figure. Again, we're talking about people like we've talked about a number of them this week who, who died prematurely. But um, so so, you know, being kind of a tormented guy himself, Abel Ferrara wanted to look at, at Pasolini and, and sort of do a film portrait of him. It's not a biopic. It's it's sort of a, a portrait of him preparing for one of his films. And it is, uh, it is quite compelling. Defoe is very good in it. Mm. The movie's a little bit uneven. They didn't have a huge budget for it. But if you're an Abel Ferrara fan and if you understand what, what a lot of his demons are and what a lot of Pasolini's demons are, they kind of overlap to some degree. And, um, it's, 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 it's worth, if you know that going in, it's, it's worth a sit down. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, Hitman's mm-hmm. Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, oh, yeah. Tim, we, they, they got the band back together for this thing. Uh, Patrick Hughes directs this sequel of sorts to Hitman's Bodyguard when this is the Hitman's wife's bodyguard. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, it's a lot of wonderful people that I love. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Morgan Freeman and Samuel L. Jackson, Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek. I kind of love all those people. They're all really terrific, but I don't really love the movie. No, no, this, this man, this thing is trying so hard. It's trying so hard. It gives a whole lot of juice to Selma's character. She's the, she's the yeah. wife, but Which she's way, work. she's far and away more lethal than, than the bodyguard, than her, Samuel Jackson's, you know, he's just hit man. And it's this whole thing. 
and, and was, she's was, more was, lethal than all. I keep thinking to myself, they need to hire her. <laughs> would, this, would this have worked in the 80s or 90s when we were making these kinds of things? If like, like if this were a John McTiernan movie from 1992 or something, you know, would when we're doing the lethal weapon thing and the Schwarzenegger and Stallone, like would would this have, have been able to live in that moment more successfully? I bet you it would. Being unfair I, to I it. bet you it would. I, no, I bet you it yeah. would. I bet you would. But then again, it has you know it has to it has to it has to live you know within the context of the weight of all of these films that have sort of come and gone uh, uh, before us. And yeah, and, but so yeah, uh, yeah, sure, it would have been fun back then. But he, watching it now. Uh, particularly, you know, look, Samuel Jackson would have been in some of those movies back <laughs> back in the eighties. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and seeing him running around, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, guys, you know, I think we've been here. I think we've done that. Well, speaking of uh, where we've been and done that, Supernova on Blu-ray, uh, oh, yeah. which is fine. This is from Bleecker Street and Wolf Video. Uh, it's a, it's one of the higher profile things that Wolf has released in quite a while. Wolf is primarily an LGBT uh, label. And that's the subject matter here, but boy, they have a couple of great actors. Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci play uh, a couple, uh, a longtime couple, who are on a road trip. And there's a reason why they're on a road trip. If you have ever seen, in your life, if you've ever actually seen, oh, I don't know, a movie, you <laughs> know where the, you know what the road trip is about. It's not just they're going to get somewhere and party. Somebody's dying. Duh. Yeah. And so it is, it is a, one of those, it's one of those movies where people are on a road trip because somebody's dying and you have to get there. And then of course they die and there's a reconciliation. Okay. And you find out the relationship has not been as perfect as they, they like to portray. And it's the usual. This is a very, very familiar plot. It's been done with gay couples. It's been done with straight couples. It's been done, you know, in foreign languages. This story has been done a hundred times. Um, it, it, they, and they're all sort of trying to wrestle with the same thing, which is that we can't really reconcile ourselves to the idea of losing a loved one that yeah. we've been with a long time. And um, you look back on the relationship and all that. That said, despite all the familiarity and everything that is just so, so, so boilerplate, um, I just love these two actors. I yeah. just love these two actors. And what a pairing. You know, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth are so good. They could just do anything. And, They're wonderful. Uh, is- but you know what I found strange about this movie at the time? It has nothing to do with the movie because I think it is a lovely movie. Very familiar, as you say. But yeah. you have these two straight actors playing gay men. And, yeah, nobody, said, and, nobody, and nobody said anything. Yeah. Which, you know, I didn't say anything. I wouldn't say anything. But it's really interesting the way we decide to pick and choose uh, these things, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, it's, 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 um, uh, so anyway, it's, it's, it's a lovely movie. Um, uh, very familiar in, in, in a thousand different ways, but, um, uh, there really isn't any reason, um, if, for the two straight actors to be playing the two, the two gay guys. Uh, although I don't have any problem with it at all. Uh, and I, and I, and I think it made for a great movie. Um, anyway, anyway, interesting how these things sort of, uh, get discussed sometimes when, when they do and when they don't. Very true. So uh, a really, really interesting movie here. Stone in the Water. A mm. Stone in the Water um, with an interesting tagline, Love Breeds Madness. This is a really interesting indie thriller, uh, and it's being independently released. You should definitely look for it. Check it out. Um, it, this was made just a couple of years ago by a director named uh, Daniel Cohen, uh, written and directed by Daniel Cohen. And Bonnie Bedelia, who doesn't get enough credit, remember Bonnie Bedelia kind of, you know, captivated yeah. all of us in Jonathan Kaplan's Heart Like a Wheel a million years ago, and, uh, and then went on to kind of be relegated to Bruce Willis's wife in the Die Hard movies. Bonnie Bedelia is an amazing actress, yeah. and she's still an amazing actress. 
And uh, here she plays a woman. And let me try to try to outline this. This is a woman who is devastated by the death of her son. And then there seems to be some kind of redemption that happens when uh, a woman shows up, a young woman shows up and is pregnant, claiming that she's pregnant with the late son's child. Very interesting premise, right? Mm. And the the question is is sort of less about, well, is it or isn't it your grandchild? The question is, when you're when you're grief stricken and something happens that is whether true or not that gives you a chance to take away the grief do you do you go with it just to get rid of the grief or or does truth matter to what degree would you be willing to say i need to know if this is true versus whether it's true or not it's going to help me get through this mm-hmm. very very interesting concept and uh, I will, of course, say nothing about where it goes and, and, the, and the turns that it takes. But it is, uh, it's a very, very well-done film. Uh, props to Daniel Cohen for, for a rock-solid script and some, some very compelling direction. And, uh, you know, uh, Melissa Fumero and Bonnie Bedelia, they, they kind of nail it. And uh, it's a very, very, uh, very compelling film. It is called A Stone in the Water, and it is on Blu-ray. Mm. I see Wrath of a Man here, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie, uh, you know, making a Guy Ritchie film in a Guy Ritchie kind of kind of way. Jason Statham. Uh, you, you got a couple of different kinds of Jason films. You got Jason films, which are fighting films. Jason punching, kicking, uh, beating people up. And then you have Jason films, which are gun films, which are, which is usually what's happening when he's working with Guy. Uh, you know, not, not all that much fighting, more about guns. This is a Guy Ritchie, Jason Statham gun film. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole lot going on in this movie. And what I like about it is, is that if you stick with it, all of the little threads that are dangled out in this movie that seems like it's full of just disparate, disparate uh, characters doing things that don't make any sense, who's who, what's, what, what's going on, they all come together and tie up absolutely beautifully at the end. It's extremely satisfying that in, in that way. It's satisfying in that Guy Ritchie film kind of way. You lots of guys talking manly talk, doing manly things. It has to do with armored cars uh, and armored car robberies and, 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 uh, and, and devi- devious people doing all kinds of stuff. That's what we think we're watching. And, and indeed, all of that is going on. There are armored cars. There are armored car robberies. There are, there are dastardly people doing, doing devious things. But the movie ain't about none of that. The movie isn't about any of that. And what the movie is actually about is what sort of gobsmack you as you work your way through it. So in that way, frankly, this 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 is number two on my list of Guy Ritchie films. We start with Snatch, and we I guess we're talking Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, yeah, and a whole bunch yeah. of guys, you know, all of them Sherlock Holmes and all yeah. that. But frankly, this is my number two favorite Snatch. Number one, uh, yeah, uh, Snatch but, is so funny. But this is my this is my number two f- favorite Guy Ritchie film um, of of all those Guy Ritchie films. I will only say this. I'll say Jason Statham at a certain point in his career realized that what he was doing was basically crossing Michael Caine with Clint Eastwood. Mm. He was, he, he was, ta- he was talking like Michael Caine and then he would put that Clint Eastwood <laughs> on it. Yeah. That's yeah. what he did. He crossed Michael Caine with Clint Eastwood. I, it's you fascinating. It. I, that occurred to me the other day. And I'm like, Oh, that's all he's doing. He's you, totally nailed learned. It. you nailed it. And, and my favorite line, you know, my favorite line from Snatch is, 
Yeah. This is my favorite line from Snatch. Yeah, but I think I, I, <laughs> I think I think Brad Pitt said that. <laughs> <laughs> he did. You're absolutely right. You remember very well. The Waterman is a really, really uh, fun movie. It's a great family movie directed by and starring or co-starring David Oyelowo, who is who's not putting himself front and center here. And um, he's uh, he, he, it's basically a kind of a, a childhood quest mythical tale thing in the vein of those movies that we saw as kids escape from which mountain where kids are off on a mission and adults, you know, are like, what are they doing? We've got to go find them. And David Oyelowo, of course, is, you know, the, one of the fathers, I've got to go find them. So it's a little, it's, 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 it's more intense than what he usually does. He usually plays these very benign figures and here he's a little bit more intense, but it's good. He puts himself there and it's just wonderful. The whole idea of uh, looking for this, uh, you know, looking for searching for immortality is is always a good a good arc for for these kinds of family films, mm. and uh, I think it's lovely. Rosario Dawson is terrific, yeah. And the kids are the kids are just great. Uh, the kids are just absolutely great. Alfred Molina shows up in this as well. It's fantastic. Good film. The Waterman. Good solid uh, directing effort from David Oyelowo. He deserves more. Uh, I'm looking at this thing called Midnight in the Switchgrass. Oh yeah. Which is which is is interesting for this reason. So this Bruce is Willis. This, this is Bruce Willis, Emil Hirsch, uh, Megan Fox too, for that matter. Uh, and and this fairly you know expensive high production value film uh, that was made during uh, the pandemic here in the last in the last year. Or so I got to tell you, Lucas Haas. I got to tell you, this film uh, you know in any other sort of context would uh, would probably have been a theatrically releasable film. It's pretty good too. Um, um, uh, so, you know, uh, it's just sort of interesting, uh, the way these things have worked out over the last year or two, but all these, Emil Hirsch, of course, was in Into the Wild, Megan Fox, we know from all the, uh, those Transformer movies that we were talking about and everything else. And of course, Bruce Willis, freaking Bruce Willis. Do you know what else we know I have Megan Fox from? Yeah. Uh, she, she now basically does massive Instagram posts of herself on the way to Arahuan, uh, flaunting her new Arahuan shopping fashion, which is uh, a, a bodysuit that shows under boob and abs. <laughs> I learned about that by reading In Style, uh, which is where I go to see how far journalism has sunk these days. Uh, uh, I even did a Facebook post. I'm like, are you serious? We're getting articles about Megan Fox, like posing her way to the market while she flashes under boob and abs in a bodysuit. She's probably making I, a hell of a lot more money doing that than she is in these movies. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, anyway, so mean. Not, so mean. Natasha Henstridge is still kicking around. So is Costas Mandalore. They're oh, still making movies. And yeah. they still look great. And they are in Night of the Sicario. Yeah. Uh, Which has nothing to do with... Uh, nothing to do with Sicario. No, nothing whatsoever. No. But clever. It's just... Yeah, you know, you can't, you can't copyright a name. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's like a lot of those things. It's like uh, uh, Emmanuel... Yeah, <laughs> you don't. You do with two M's, one M, two L's, one L, no E. You, you'll find a way. <laughs> anyway, Django, uh, Django too, same thing. Yeah, this is a, this is a pretty straightforward, uh, you know, gun thriller, and uh, you know, there's, a, there's like a federal witness and DEA agents and blah blah blah, the usual thing. It, it's not anything spectacular. The only reason I make mention of this is because Natasha Henstridge does not freaking age. She's like John Amos, man. Yeah, you're you're like I'm sorry, but I remember how you looked 30 years ago. You've got to be, you've got to be like late 50s at least by now, and you still look like you're you're 29. I don't yeah. understand it. It's yeah. very distressing. Yeah, I love it. I wish I had some of that. 
Uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw with Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson trying to inject new life into this franchise. I don't know, Tim. I think uh, this franchise needs to go away. I feel That's like that. I, I, I feel like this is way beneath Sam Jackson. I get it. The man is – they throw money at him like there's no tomorrow. And how do you how do you say like you want to pay me how much to do what? Okay. Yeah. He's not in that movie. I, he's not in that movie. He's not in that movie 10 minutes. Not not like if even half that. Yeah. But um, it's still – they're right here, they're billing it as a Samuel Jackson thing. It's like right on the cover. Yeah. And I feel like – okay, I get why Chris Rock did it. I get it because Chris Rock wants to show that he can he can stretch. You know, that he's more than just the guy who does, you know, a certain kind of comedy. And that, you know, if you want to stick him in a, into an Adam Sandler movie or something, he, he wants to say, look, I'm older now. I can do a serious thing. I can, I can be a serious actor. And I'm going to take this dumb Saw movie and I'm going to stretch it as best as I can and show you what I can do. Now, would you please give me a good movie? Yeah. I do not begrudge him a second for being in this. That said, I really do think this is just pointless and this whole franchise needs to go away max Mengele too is re- this is really beneath him i just wish everybody in this were making a different movie i love them all but i wish they were making better movies yeah what about this thing stardust uh, the, the early early matthew vaughn movie uh, uh which is you know it's so like not a matthew vaughn movie uh it, it, you I, know, I it's an adaptation to neil gaiman i think it goes back to neil gaiman yeah and this yeah. it takes it takes place in 1971 and it's all it's it's kind of a it's it's basically a semi it's not a biopic but it's a it's a little bit like tomaso right it's about an episode in the life of david bowie played here by johnny flynn uh it's and it's it's sort of it's sort of about promoting the Bowie record, the man who sold the world, but it's um, it's sort of more about that moment. It's about uh, celebrity in that moment, the the glam moment, and which was very fleeting, and mm. it, it kind of came on strong, and it just flamed out very very quickly. And uh, it's about how Bowie sort of recognizes this and looks at that moment and adjusts himself to it and how it sort of for- forges him and makes him who into who he wound up being for millions and millions and millions of fans. Mm. I don't know that it's um, I don't know that the, it's that great of a of a of a I don't I don't know that it succeeds particularly at what it's trying to do. This was made about three years ago. I don't. I don't know that it succeeds that well at what it's trying to do, but it certainly um, it raises some interesting questions, and I think you can you know run run with it after you've seen it. Jenna Malone as uh, as Bowie's wife is very very good, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's there's some you know some things going on to it. The tagline is good, David before Bowie. That's a good tagline. That's a good tagline. <laughs> I give him credit. That's not like one of the ones we always make fun of. Um, Tim, did you see Luca? The Pixar film? I, no, I did not see that. I wasn't on that week, so I missed it. You know, I heard Charles kick it real hard, but you know that. Was yeah, hard. he kicked it hard. Uh, I, I I think he was a little tough on it, but but Charles holds Pixar to a high standard, and it is not top tier uh, uh, Luca, but here or top tier Pixar. But here's the thing: I did like a lot of it, and my daughter liked a lot of it. So I use my daughter to kind of gauge how I respond to a lot of these things. This is out on 4K. They did not send us the 4K because Disney's being stingy and cheap these days because, you know, they're hurting financially. <laughs> uh, so and they, they do. They do. They Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson came after him. So, you know. oh, yeah. So so we so we get a Blu-ray instead of a 4K because they've got to save their pennies because ScarJo just sued them. <laughs> I, sometimes I just don't get yeah, I don't understand this business. But in any case. Uh, movies anywhere code on here, obviously, because it's Disney owned. But here's the thing. Luca is the the directing debut 
of uh, a very, very talented director, Enrico Casarosa, who did a, uh, a very successful Pixar short, uh, which I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's, it's La Luna. That's it, La Luna. He La did Luna, La Luna. Yeah. And so this has a lot of similar DNA with La Luna. And uh, it's really quite sweet. It's, a, it's about a friendship between children, but one of them is a sea creature. It's kind of like a merman. Uh, or a silky, whatever you want to call them. And um, it, uh, it takes place on the Italian Riviera, uh, you know, circa what I think the 1940s or something like that. And it has a really wonderful vibe to it. And it, uh, it's, it's got a really nice mythical vibe. It has, you know, it touches on a lot of those, those things that we get in movies like The Secret of Ron Hinnish, John Sale's mm-hmm. Secret of Ron Hinnish, you know, where there's a, there's this, 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 you know, you're trying to sort of bridge the gap between two different species, between the people of the sea and the people of the land. Um, but really, it finds it finds a, a wonderful, magical place there. And is it perfect? By no means. Is it classic Pixar? Not really. But I do think there's a lot of uh, a lot of real sweetness between the lines in this film. So I, I do recommend this in ways that I have not recommended a lot of uh, Disney animation of late. Uh, we only got a couple minutes left. Let's um, let me see. You know, let me let me. Um, let me plug a couple of these uh, arrows, and we'll save the we'll save the foreign stuff for next time because there's a lot there's some good foreign stuff that we haven't gotten to. Yeah. Um, uh, Yasuzo Masamura's Blind Beast uh, from Arrow. This is, um, you know, the, the the there's a there's a there's kind of a space in Japanese cinema which is, lives between Japanese art films and what is often called Jap exploitation. Everybody's got an exploitation yeah. moniker, right? Black exploitation, Oz exploitation, Jap exploitation. They, mm. they, they all kind of live. All those words are only vaguely accurate. The um, this is based on a on a story by Edgar Rampo, the uh, the famous uh, Japanese novelist uh, who who was sort of memorialized in one of my all time favorite Japanese movies, The Mystery of Rampo, um, and it's a uh, it's artier than it is exploitation-y, um, but it's still probably a little bit too exploitation-y for me personally. Uh, the, the, there's a, I don't want to give this away. There's a, um, it kind, there, there's kind of a silence of the Lambsy element to this, but it goes into dark places. I wish it didn't mm. go, and I don't mm. think it needed to go. It just. It's a little bit too nasty for me, and uh, it's very stylish, but it's just, you know, kidnapping women, women in peril, mm. women in peril movies. I have a problem with them. Yeah. You know, I've got a daughter. Um, 12 Monkeys in a, in a Steelbook uh, Blu-ray edition is fantastic. I love this movie. I think it's oh, one wow. of Terry Gilliam's best. It's so good. So many great things on here. There's an audio camera. Tim, I know you're a big fan of Chuck Roven. Yeah. Uh, especially where this movie is concerned. And... Um, Chuck Roven's produ- the, producer of the, of, the, of the film. Of the film. And Chuck Roven, who, of course, produces all the DC stuff now, all the Batman stuff. And, you know, everything DC, they get Chuck Roven because he's an amazing producer. He, yeah. But he's, Which he's he also proves, <laughs> what is this, like 1990-something or other? Yes. And, and, and I remember you telling me, I had not seen The Hamster Factor, uh, which is the, the, the documentary on the making of this film, which is on here. And Chuck Roven does an audio commentary for this with Terry Gilliam, which is essential listening, absolutely essential listening. But uh, I remember you telling me, oh, you got to see The Hamster Factor. And the same filmmakers would, of course, go on to do uh, Lost in La Mancha, which was you know, supposed to also be a DVD extra. And then the movie blew up. Yeah. 
for stories based on I've told my involvement in that story many times here I'm sure and um the you told me you go you got to watch the hamster factor Chuck Roven saves this movie at least three times yep yep and I'm like well I gotta see that and sure enough there are like three moments in here where Terry Gilliam is about to go completely off the reservation and Chuck Roven pulls him back yeah. just pulls him back and you go that's a producer yeah, yeah. People ask what do what do producers do? Watch this, and you and you he, he saved it. Sa- you, Terry Gilliam would have made a mess, and he yeah. would have, it would have done him well to have producers like Chuck Roven around for a lot of his movies. Quentin Tarantino, uh, same situation. Frankly, I'm gonna tell you when when you, when, you, when you look at a Quentin movie. And and the Quentin movie isn't quite what you think it should be. Look and see who's producing that movie. And I can I can tell you who it won't be. Uh, because Quentin had a few producers, particularly early in his career, not not, not just producers to an editor, Sally, his editor, Sally, uh, Sally Minkin, Sally Minkin. I think her name yeah. is Sally Minkin. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, she was never a producer, but but she saved Quentin so many times in his early career. It's ridiculous. Uh, Lawrence Bender saved him more times. Stacey Shear saved him more times. You can shake a stick at uh, filmmakers, particularly certain kinds of filmmakers need someone around to them, them who will say no. You're That's, wrong. Uh, like, <laughs> You've made a terrible mistake. They all they do. They all do. And and yeah. Chuck was that was that guy for Terry Gilliam. It's like having an editor when you're when you're a novelist. You yeah. know, you need that person who just says the crossing this paragraph out, crossing this paragraph out. No. Uh, I should I should have mentioned this previously. I, I misfiled the stuff here. Uh, we have another Yasuzu Musumara film, which is Giants and Toys, which mm. is wonderful. And this is the one that is is uh, probably most famous. Uh, this is basically a. Uh, a very, very timely satire of Japanese business culture. And it's all sort of set around um, a, a group of, it's like, it's like madmen set around the candy business in Japan. And it's completely insane and bonkers and it's hilarious and it's very pointed and it still stands the test of time. Might even be more timely now than it, is, than it was at the time when it was made. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very sharp. It's very smart. It's based, um, on a novel that was written in 1957, right? When advertising is becoming that thing, right? Mm. Television and radio and magazines and everything's blowing up. And, and, uh, it, it's very, you know, it's, it, what's the, what's the old movie? How to something advertising. Uh, yeah. The, how to survive and how to succeed in advertising. Not really true. Something. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. it. This is like the Japanese version of that on meth <laughs> and uh it comes with uh some pretty great extras on here there's a new audio commentary by japanese film scholar irene gonzalez lopez which is very very good and uh, a really really cool visual essay by asian cinema scholar earl jackson so that's fun uh this is the um let's see i want to i want to make final mention here of yeah, let's let's go out on this one, and we'll mm. we'll save the, all the others for another time. Uh, Major Dundee, oh. Sam Peckinpah classic, great western, and I think one of the most underrated Charlton Heston performances ever, and a Richard Harris performance yeah. that nobody gives him enough credit for. Yeah, I really like this. You know why I like this? It's so not a Peckinpah film. I mean, it yeah. is, but it isn't. You know what I mean? Well, Peckinpah, we think it's just a sort of out, what we called back then, the sort of outlandish violence. Yeah. Uh, uh, now that we look at it, <laughs> I think to myself, man, what were we thinking? Um, uh, we, we, if we thought that was violent. But at the time, and this isn't that. <clears throat> yeah. This isn't that at all. Jim Hutton uh, uh, in, in this Peckinpah film. It really, I, I love this one too. I'm a big, big fan. And you're right. People forget that Richard Harris is in this movie because Charlton Heston is so damn good in this movie. 
That's that. James it. Colburn. I mean, I mean Warren yeah. Oates. Warren yeah. Oates. Rock uh, Peters. L- LQ Jones. I mean, it's a it's a it's a fantastic cast, mm. and it really it, it it is it is similar in some respects to the Searchers. It's sort of yeah. like Peck and Paws version of the Searchers, but it's you know. Uh, and, and the story basically centers around uh, Charlton Heston as the titular Major Dundee, who is this cavalry officer, this Union cavalry officer, who is trying to uh, track down an Apache chief. You know, and and so it's it's a it's a pretty classic standard uh, Western trope, but it's but it's not. It's symbolic and it's epic. And Peckinpah pulls his punches is what I like. Normally Peckinpah's a guy who just unleashes, you know, his worst id on the movie. But he pulls his punches here because I think he realizes he's working with a more artful canvas. And he really kind of gets into a, in, into a different zone and he's very introspective in some places here. And uh, I, I just think this is, it's almost Sergio Leone-esque in some respects. It's like Peckinpah's Sergio Leone and John Ford film. Yeah. I, there's just a lot of great stuff. Um, Nick Redman, the wonderful, wonderful Nick Redman, David Weddle, uh, whom I, I've, whom I've sat next to at our, our dinners. Um, and a bunch of other people are part of one commentary. There's another co- commentary with, uh, some other film uh, scholars. Um, I mean, this thing is just loaded. There's a feature documentary about the making of the film by Mike Siegel, uh, which has interviews with a lot of the surviving members. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. I haven't even scratched the surface. This is, this is a two disc Blu-ray. It's just filled with great stuff. It is an all-time classic Peck and Paw film. And you got to get it. You got to check it out. It's worth having. It's, uh, it really is. This is like the, when people talk about great Charlton Heston performances, mm. they never mention this. No. They never mention this. It's like, oh, you know, they'll, they, they will even mention Touch of Evil, where it's like, no, no, he's not good in Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil is a great movie, but Ch- Heston is not what's great about it. Heston, well, you know. There's a terrible Mexican accent. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but they'll mention, you know, Planet of the Apes and Ben Hur and the Ten Commandments, where he's not even very good. And, and you know, Soylent Green, and they skip right over Major Dundee. They never mention it. This is one of his great performances. It's really good. So there it is. That's it for this week. And uh, we'll be back next week. I'm gonna. I got some great foreign stuff here. We didn't get to this week, obviously. Uh, Tim, you and I are actually going to see each other in person for the first time in a, in a year and a half. In a yeah, weeks, aren't we? yeah, we got, a, we got ourselves a meeting coming up. Let's hope, cross our fingers and hope, hope, hope everything stays, you know, uh, copacetic okay. and uh, and people can move around and uh, come hang out here at the old Marengo house. It's going to be great. All right, everybody, have yourselves a great week. Stay safe.